Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also got to look into where all that coronavirus money is going. The Small Business Association and Treasury Department released the names of more than 660,000 businesses that received money from the Paycheck Protection Program. The program has given out billions of dollars to small businesses, including some lawmaker-connected businesses, including car dealerships, casinos, construction companies, and restaurants. For more on where all this PPP money is going, we'll speak to Nicholas Wu, politics reporter at USA Today. This was a massive data dump. There's over 660,000 names, and that's just in the businesses that we got all the names for. Uh, And these were the businesses that got over $150,000 in loans. But the great majority of the loans given were actually um, for under that amount, and all the names were redacted for those. Uh, So... It's a wide range of businesses here. Everything from you know your mom and pop kind of uh, restaurants and stores up to uh, some businesses that were franchises of major corporations to yes, the the yacht clubs and the wineries and the uh, businesses that are connected to members of Congress. Obviously, this is to help get people through the coronavirus uh, shutdowns. But uh, what do the people have to do to apply and successfully get a loan? So it was kind of a tricky process. So the the idea was to provide forgivable loans to small businesses in order to keep all of their employees on through the coronavirus pandemic. And the criteria was that you needed to have 500 or fewer workers and you could get a low interest loan of up to $10 million. And originally, as it was written, a lot of franchises of major corporations were eligible because the total number of employees you had was counted by the individual business unit, not as part of the overall you know, large corporation that is something like McDonald's. So that caused a lot of controversy, but was changed um, once the program was renewed. And so tell us some of the big names that were getting some money in this. As mentioned at the beginning, there was a lot of lawmaker-connected businesses that received some of this money. What we noticed as, as we're going through the data is that some of these businesses are connected to uh, some of the wealthiest members of Congress. And uh, a lot of these members do own small businesses on the side, too. So, for instance, we noticed everyone from Congressman Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania, whose car dealerships received at least three different loans between $350,000 each and $1 million. Another congressman, Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma, whose company that's held in a family trust received loans for their McDonald's franchises. And uh, Congressman Matt Cartwright in Pennsylvania, his wife is a partner at a law firm, and they received a loan somewhere between $350,000 and $1 million. The Treasury Department gave us dollar amounts in terms of ranges, not in terms of specific amounts. There's not anybody that's been accused of any wrongdoing in, in any of this. This is just kind of throwing out the names of basically people who have gotten some of these loans. There are the names of the businesses, not of the specific people. So it was, it was kind of tricky to actually trace all of them back to who actually owned all of these. 
What's been the overall reception of this program? Because I know that there's been a few problems early on in the beginning. There's a lot of businesses that complained that they didn't get anything, any money out of this, but it does seem to have helped a vast variety of businesses get through some of these shutdowns or at least try to get through some of the shutdowns. It's something that we saw, especially with these businesses uh, owned or linked to lawmakers, was that they emphasized that they were able to keep on staff for the duration of the pandemic. So this was a very popular program, and it was so popular, in fact, that it ran out of money at first because so many people needed the funding. Where the controversy comes in is what order people might have gotten funds in, whether there was any special preference because of connections people had, or in the case of some companies like uh, those controlled by the governor of West Virginia, um, the governor there is a billionaire. And he also owns a very large resort complex in the state, which received, let's see, between five to $10 million worth of loans. So that's where we're seeing some of the backlash to the PPP program. And it'll be interesting to see what Congress does with it the next time um, it comes up for renewal. Nicholas Wu, politics reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This week, there was also news concerning all you TikTok fans out there. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and President Trump have both said that they're looking at banning TikTok from the United States. The reasons may differ, however. Pompeo says there are national security concerns, and President Trump might want to ban it to punish China for the coronavirus. For more on this, we'll speak to Sam Sheed, tech correspondent at CNBC. This is kind of the latest incident of the U.S. raising alarm bells about a Chinese company. So obviously Huawei has been in the spotlight quite a lot. The US says that Huawei could pose a national security threat. They're worried that the company will pass data to Beijing. So that's where it all kind of comes from. Huawei have been under pressure. ZTE have been under pressure in the past before as well. And TikTok is just the latest company to kind of face pressure from the Trump administration. Now, the company that owns TikTok is called ByteDance, and it's headquartered in Beijing, but TikTok was quick to point out that now they have an American CEO. They have huge offices in Los Angeles. I think their European hub is in London. So they're quick to try to distance themselves from Beijing and also saying things like they wouldn't provide them with any personal information from users, even if they asked. They've been on this push to set up offices around the world, and they are very keen to distance themselves from ByteDance. So as you pointed out, they've hired Kevin Mayer, who was uh, head of streaming at Disney before. And he's the new CEO of TikTok based in Los Angeles, where they've got hundreds of people working. And they've also got hundreds of staff in London as well. So they want the world to know that TikTok user data is not stored or passed to Beijing. That's what they tell people. They deny any allegations that that's what they're doing. So yeah, they are definitely trying to appear as an international company as opposed to a Chinese company. TikTok's only been around since about 2017, and they've grown pretty huge. I think they have over 2 billion subscribers and whatnot. And I remember early on, there was concerns about privacy and things like that. But has there been any indication that they have handed over any user information to Beijing? Has there been any of that stuff? As far as I'm aware, there is no evidence to suggest that they've done that. I'm sure that U.S. policymakers and politicians are desperately trying to find some, but 
as of yet, I don't think there's any evidence to support the allegations that they're making. Now, we have to also mention, you know, there was this thing with the president and his rally that he was going to have in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There was news that there was a bunch of TikTok users that got together and said, hey, let's sign up for tickets and then not show up. It just begs the question, you know, maybe is the administration angry that TikTok users banded together on this front? Quite possibly. I mean, I've seen people saying that if President Trump wants to lose young voters, then the thing to do is to take TikTok away from them. Young people love this app. And if the U.S. president was to ban it now, I think there would be a major backlash. It's really become very popular. People are kind of using it now more than they're using Facebook and Instagram in some cases. So, yeah, I can understand why people would be angry. But there's a lot of political powers at play when it comes to TikTok. TikTok just said that they're pulling out of the Hong Kong market. China imposed new security law in the city that gives police more powers. What was going on with that story? So TikTok was worried that it would be forced to give user data to Beijing if it remained in Hong Kong. Now that the police have these sweeping powers to request data from technology companies on Hong Kong users, TikTok decided that it would kind of just backtrack and pull out of Hong Kong altogether. And as a result, it won't have to comply with any data access requests from Beijing. TikTok doesn't have that many users in Hong Kong, so it's not a huge deal in some ways. I think it's got about 150,000 users in Hong Kong. So some people are saying it was a bit of a PR move to appear as though they weren't close to Beijing. So that's kind of the story there. Well, I mean, it'll be an interesting development if TikTok does get banned in the United States. For now, it just seems like even coming from Mike Pompeo and the president himself, they're looking at it. You know, they're not confirming anything. As you mentioned, it'd be pretty hard to envision that actually happening. I mean, you're going to lose a lot of young supporters who are making money on the platform and just enjoy being there. It would be a pretty tough sell at that point. But we'll have to continue monitoring to see what happens on this story. I would be shocked if they did ban the app in the U.S., but they banned it in India last week. So it is possible for big countries to ban TikTok. Sam Sheed, tech correspondent at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally for this week, a world leader in pandemic preparedness at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security has said that we might have to deal with wearing masks for several years as it will take time for a vaccine to hit the masses. For more on this and how technology is being leveraged to help fight against COVID-19, we'll speak to Claire Riley, host of Hacking the Apocalypse and senior editor at CNET. We spoke to Eric last year, and as we were setting out this series, we really thought, what are the scariest things from Hollywood movies that terrify us? So things like mega tsunamis, nuclear winter, and pandemic, of course, was up there. And so we went and spoke to Johns Hopkins. They are the leaders when it comes to these kinds of emergency threats. Eric Toner himself, he does things like bioterrorism. He was telling me he works through simulations on what would happen if we had an airborne pathogen that was intentionally released by someone. So he's really across this. But obviously, we were speaking all in kind of speculative ways about this last year. And then, obviously, 
the pandemic hit this year and the world has been completely turned upside down. But what has been so interesting is this is what Eric does. This is his life. He goes through step by step and thinks about what would happen if X kind of virus came? What would happen if it was bacterial? How would our hospitals respond if XYZ happened? So he simulates these things. He works through these things. And then obviously it happened in real life. And he's kind of in this position where he's prepared for this his whole life. But it plays out in real time in a very different way because suddenly you have concerns that the public bring in. You have concerns about mask wearing. You have concerns about how will people work in a pandemic. So it was really interesting speaking to him last year. And then we've caught up a number of times since the pandemic has hit to kind of touch base and find out what's actually happening and how is this playing out and how can we end this? And that leads me to the top line of one of your latest articles about this. And this was getting a lot of traction all over the place. In the eyes of a pandemic expert, he says, we'll be living with masks for years. And that's been a big point of contention right now, wearing face masks. A lot of people don't want to do it. A lot of people are doing it and getting mad at people who don't. But that's one of the things he said. It's going to take us a while to still get a vaccine and all these effective treatments. Even if a vaccine comes by the end of the year before it's mass produced and available to everybody, it's still going to take some time after that. And he said that, you know, we're going to have to have this degree of social distancing and living with masks for several years. Tell us about how Eric Toner felt about that. It was really interesting. Obviously, you can hear from my accent that I'm not from the States. I moved here in January not the best timing. But it's been interesting how different countries have tackled this. And back in Australia, obviously a much smaller population, places like New Zealand, once again, a smaller population, but they've really jumped on the things that the World Health Organization and that public health experts recommend to tackle something like this. And those are things like testing, making sure you're seeing where the virus is and where it's popping up, and then preventative measures. And we heard a lot about washing our hands in the early days of this pandemic, but masks are a really simple tool. There's a lot of scientific evidence that points to masks protecting you from infecting other people just by stopping the droplets that come out of your mouth when you talk, when you yell, when you sing. And that's particularly important with this kind of disease. When I spoke to him, I was kind of shocked by that as well. I'm here and I'm missing my family. I want them to be able to come over and visit. I don't want to be in lockdown. No one does. But he kind of said, we need to get used to this if we're not going to get the whole situation under control. And we can't get it under control unless we have a vaccine or a treatment. And that's a bit of time coming. But the really basic thing is masks. And if we all wore masks, the rate of infection would drop. We'd be able to get this much more under control. So I think it's not that we will be wearing full personal protective equipment for the next five years, walking around in some sort of dystopian science fiction film. But I think what might happen over the next six months, a year, is that we get more used to maybe wearing a mask at a supermarket or maybe when we're meeting up with a large group of people, we're not sure, they're not our close friends, we know they've been kind of staying safe. So maybe we'd wear a mask in that situation. Another interesting thing that he said too was that there will be no summertime lull. A lot of people were thinking uh, summertime comes, it's going to be uh, hot outside, people are going to get out, there might be a break in cases there. but as economies here in the United States started opening up just in the past month or so, uh, we're seeing cases go right back up. And it seems like there won't be a lull. It's going to carry us straight into the fall where uh, people originally kind of thought that second wave was going to hit. So, uh, I mean, this kind of all wraps itself together. This is why we need to continue the social distancing, being careful and wearing the mask. This is how he sees it playing out. 
So there's actually two things involved here. One is the idea of a summertime lull. A lot of people often reference this pandemic and they look back at the great influenza pandemic of 1918, everyone returning from war and about 50 to 100 million people around the world died, which was catastrophic. Now, influenza, the virus behind that pandemic is a seasonal virus. And Eric was talking to me and saying, you know, you do see with this kind of virus, it spikes up in wintertime and it's less prevalent in summer. So you might think of that in flu season. You go and get your flu shot as you're heading into winter in the States here. But that's one side of it. COVID-19, the disease, and this particular novel coronavirus isn't really seasonal in the same way that traditional influenza is. But also, as you pointed out, the social aspects. We aren't seeing a summertime lull because people, understandably, were in real dire economic straits. People were agitated from having to stay indoors. They were fed up. And so we started to reopen some places far, far too quickly. There's an idea that if you really just lock down and then get it under control, you can ease back that dimmer switch of opening things back up again and it can be safer to do so. But it seems that a lot of states reopened too quickly and we started to see this spike again. And Eric said, look, even if we lock down today and everyone just started completely behaving, we're still going to see a spike in a month's time because It takes a while for these symptoms to manifest and present themselves, takes a while for those people to get sick enough to go into hospital. And so it's kind of this delayed effect. So you're right, we're not going to see a lull if we continue at the rate we do. And also this particular virus and this disease doesn't really work like that. It's not all bad news. There is some good news. Hospitals are getting better and managing the symptoms and getting ahead of this before it gets really bad in a lot of patients, before they have to go on ventilators, things like that. And then we're leveraging technology. This is kind of where it all started, the hacking the apocalypse feature. We're leveraging technology to help get ahead of this also. I think it was the University of Tennessee is using a supercomputer to help find effective treatments for COVID-19. This supercomputer, literally only about a week or two, just got pipped for the title of fastest supercomputer in the world. But it's this incredibly impressive machine that basically just runs numbers. So if you imagine the coronavirus, it's like a ball with a lot of spikes on it. And those spikes bind to our cells and create little openings where the virus injects itself in, it multiplies, you get sicker and sicker. What they were looking at is instead of those spikes kind of spiking our cells, could we find a way for a drug to attach itself to that spike and kind of neutralize the virus? So rather than testing drugs on people and saying, all right, how do you respond to this particular tablet over that pill? What they did was they simulated the virus on the Summit supercomputer and then they ran a bunch of drugs. So they kind of showed what the drug molecule would look like. They did that in a simulation and they kind of just did this a really fast thunderdome of drugs going against virus. Does this one work? No, it doesn't seem to work. All right, we'll try the next one. And they found at least 77, and the number is still growing, they found a bunch of drug compounds that could work. So rather than testing hundreds of drugs and hoping that they work in human trials, which obviously takes time to get approved. It takes time for the humans to respond to the drug. They could find the best candidates and they could work out, okay, which ones are the most likely to succeed in a trial? And they kind of did all that hard work through the supercomputer so that they can then take those drugs and see if they'll work in actual clinical trials, which is super exciting. And it's really kind of the first time we've seen this work. I mean, we did not have the benefit of supercomputers in 1918 when we were fighting the influenza pandemic. So it's really cutting edge technology. Claire Riley, host of Hacking the Apocalypse and senior editor at CNET. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.